The gospel lesson for today comes from John's gospel, the first chapter, verses 29 through 42. Listen for the word of God. The next day, John the Baptist saw Jesus coming toward him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and have testified that this is the Son of God. The next day, John again was standing with two of his disciples, and he watched Jesus walk by. He exclaimed, Look, here is the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and saw them following, he said to them, What are you looking for? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher. Where are you staying? And he said to them, come and see. They came and saw where he was staying, and they remained with him that day. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon. And one of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated anointed. He brought Simon to Jesus, who looked at him and said, You are Simon, son of John. You are to be called Cephas, which means Peter. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. What time is it? When we were preparing the bulletin, the bulletin covers originally stated that it was the second Sunday of ordinary time, but it is also referred to and now shows on your bulletin that this indeed is the second Sunday of Epiphany, a season which begins with the celebration of the visit of the kings, the magi to the Christ child, the season which celebrates God being revealed to humanity the season in which we are called to consider, to reconsider how God is being revealed in our midst and how we might participate in that revelation. What time is it? In the life of our country, it seems we are in anything but ordinary time. Much is being revealed and yet much seems hidden. We are told we live in a post-truth world. But we have never been exposed to so much information. What time is it? 
It's the start of a new year when we, we set intentions for ourselves. And in this sermon, you may glimpse an intention that I am setting for myself. What time is it? It is the start of a week in which we honor the work of Martin Luther King Jr. Today is, in fact, his birthday. And we await the inauguration of our 45th president, Donald Trump. What time is it? It's church time. A time to gather around the world word, remembering who we are and whose we are. A time for listening to the God who is still speaking. A time to confess how we have sinned and missed the mark. A time to turn back toward God, which is literally what repenting means, right? To turn back toward God. A time to recommit to the one we are called to follow, like Andrew and Peter. A time to gather around the table Christ prepares for us and to remember his sacrifice and his grace and to be fed for the hard and worthy work of discipleship. What time is it? It is time to pray. Holy God, be with us all as we gather around your word. Be with me in my speaking and all of us in our hearing that our thoughts, our meditations, the words of my mouth might be acceptable to you, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In your name we pray. Amen. And so we are gathered in this particular time, in this particular place, gathered around this particular story from the Gospel of John, a story which begins Jesus' ministry. We have no account in John of Jesus actually being baptized, as I mentioned to the kids. John appears, John the Baptist appears, and says he doesn't know uh, what, he didn't know what this Messiah would look like. But when he sees him, he names him Lamb of God. And then Jesus' ministry begins. In Matthew, it begins with the Sermon on the Mount. In Luke, it begins with Jesus declaring who he is, that he is a fulfillment, using the words of the prophet Isaiah, a story which finds the crowd then going from yay, yay, to trying to throw him off a cliff. In Mark, he begins by silencing a demon. But here... Just before he begins, he is named by John. Now, John's gospel is different. Um, I, a, a friend of mine calls it John-splaining. John takes the synoptic gospel stories and uh, puts theology, more his theology, into them, essentially. John shapes the story so that we would have a clear idea of who Jesus is, and because he believed that Jesus had a very clear idea of who he is and what his purpose was while he was here with us in the flesh and on earth. The designation is familiar, Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world, have mercy on us. But as I was sitting this week with this particular story, I couldn't help but wonder, and I, I don't mean this, uh, I don't mean to be too strident, but 
Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And yet here we are. I know in my life and I know in the world in which I see the sins of the world are ever present. So what does it mean? What could it mean that Jesus takes away the sin of the world? I suppose it does mean, I I believe it does mean, something of the forgiveness and grace that we have come to experience and know because of Scripture and through Christ, that indeed Jesus Christ, in coming to earth, in his death and his resurrection, offers grace and forgiveness to the whole world. But there's another translation. Takes away can also be translated lifts up. And what happens when you lift something up? It becomes visible. Which makes sense coming from John's gospel because as I was telling the children, John is all about seeing and knowing. John is about what is visible and how to make things visible. So as I continued to think about this, I thought, now a Savior that takes away the sins of the world, that that offers automatic forgiveness, is easy to get on board with. A Savior that lifts up those sins before us, that makes them visible, that holds them out before the world, saying, look, not quite as appealing. In light of our world, this second translation, this lifting up of the sin of the world, is resonating with me. Jesus Christ coming to the world, divine and human, whose very being lifts up before us all that separates us from God. It makes sense, seeing the goodness of Christ would make visible how far we are from it. As I've mentioned in previous sermons, that chasm between the world that is and the world that might be. So John sets up the beginning of Jesus' ministry by saying, yes, he is the Lamb of God who takes away and lifts up the sin of the world. Then Jesus' ministry begins with a question. He notices that the disciples, who it says were John's disciples, are now following him. There's no follow me in this, uh, in this narrative. They just begin to follow once Jesus has been identified. And he turns to them and sees them and says, What are you looking for? What are you seeking The disciples reply with, according to the New Revised Standard Version, a question. Where are you staying? And it seems like a, you know, where where are you staying? A logistical question. But I don't think this is a matter of just location. Because in John, that word for staying is the word for abiding. Another very important word to John. And in the Greek, there is no punctuation. So it might be, in fact, that... What is transpired here is Jesus asking them, what are you seeking? What are you looking for? And them saying, we are seeking where you abide. 
You may recall Jesus' invitation to abide in him from later in John in the 15th chapter. As the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So, yes, what are you seeking? And they say, to abide with you. And he answers like this. Come and see. Come and see if you want to know what abiding with God is like. If you want to know what abiding in love is like, come and see Jesus. But when I was reading this part of the story, I couldn't get that first part, that lifting up out of my head, and I wondered... When they started to follow Jesus, and when we say we want to follow Jesus, do we understand, did they understand what it was that they would see? Lamb of God who lifts up the sin of the world, who takes away the sin of the world. Did they, do we know what we've gotten ourselves into. In consideration of what it means to have our sin lifted up before us and even taken away, I was drawn once again to the writing of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor and theologian, Lutheran, who wrote a lot about Christianity's place in the secular world. He was, in fact, arrested in Nazi Germany for transpiring to kill Hitler. But before this arrest, he was living uh, in New York at Union Theological Seminary. And while he was there, he came to regret having come to the States. He wrote this to Reinhold Niebuhr. I've come to the conclusion that I made a mistake coming into America, in coming to America, I must live through this difficult period in our national history with the people of Germany. I will have no right to participate in the reconstruction of Christian life in Germany after the war if I do not share the trials of this time with my people. Christians in Germany will have to face the terrible alternative of either willing defeat of their nation in order that Christian civilization may survive or willing the victory of their nation and thereby destroying civilization. I know which of these alternatives I must choose, but I cannot make that choice from security. He crossed over the Atlantic on the last scheduled steamer to Germany. It is said that the night before he left, he locked himself in his closet and chain-smoked the entire night. I think when we remember these stories, it is easy to lift up their greatness and not realize the risk and the trauma that went along with them. But I was not just drawn to this personal story of his, but of the writing that calls us to live in a similar way from his classic, The Cost of Discipleship. In it, he critiques what he calls cheap grace, 
the grace that too many Christians enjoy in lieu of actually following Christ, he writes. The upshot, he writes, of cheap grace is that my only duty as a Christian is to leave the world for an hour or so on Sunday morning and to go to church to be assured that all my sins are forgiven. I need no longer try to follow Christ for cheap grace, the bitterest foe of discipleship, which true discipleship must loathe and detest, has freed me from that. Cheap grace, he writes, is not the kind of forgiveness of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is not transformative. On the other hand, he writes, costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man, a person, must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow, and it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life, and it is grace because it gives a man his only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. This was a truth with which Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was well acquainted. As much as we celebrate him now again, he was hardly universally revered for his words and actions when he was living. Following Jesus' call, he lifted up the sin of individual and systemic racism. He invited tension in service to the gospel, in service to what he called the extremist love of Jesus Christ, and in response to that grace of God which takes away the sin of the world. This week, the young adults read the letter from a Birmingham jail, written by Dr. King when, obviously, he was in jail, a letter that he addressed to his fellow clergymen, again, men at the time, and we marveled at how relevant almost every single word and admonition was for today. You can see in his writing that he sought to explain his presence in Birmingham, which was not his hometown, uh, to protest. He sought to explain his methods for nonviolent resistance, a four-step plan which included collection of facts to determine whether injustices existed, negotiation, self-purification, and direct action. You can see from his writing that many, many question not just the presence, his presence in Birmingham, but the timing of it all. He was asked by many to just slow down because History would have a way of working things out if we took our time and, and dealt with things more peacefully and with less tension. They questioned this tension that was arising, which they attributed to his actions. In response, he wrote this. You may well ask, why direct action? Why sit-ins, marches, and so forth? Isn't negotiation a better plan? a better path. You are right in calling for negotiation. Indeed, this is the very purpose of direct action. Nonviolent direct action seeks to create such a crisis 
as to foster and foster such a tension, a tension, that a community which has consistently refused to negotiate is forced to confront the issue. It seeks to so dramatize the issue that it can no longer be ignored. My citing the creation of tension as a part of the work of, nonviolent, of the nonviolent resistor may sound rather shocking, but I must confess that I am not afraid of the word tension. I have earnestly opposed violent tension, but there is a type of constructive nonviolent, nonviolent tension which is necessary for growth. He writes later, I had hoped that the white moderate would understand that the present tension in the South is a necessary phase of the transition from an obnoxious negative peace in which the Negro passively accepted his unjust plight to a substantive and positive peace in which all men will respect the dignity and worth of human personality. Actually, we who engage in nonviolent direct action are not the creators of this tension. We merely bring it to the surface, bring to the surface the hidden tension that is already alive. We bring it out in the open where it can be seen and dealt with. Jesus Christ, who lifts up the sin of the world, have mercy on us. Friends, disciples turn away from sin. They repent, they turn toward God, but they have to know and name what that sin is. It is not just lifting up. It is not just naming. It is confessing and shining light on the darkness and making visible that which has been kept hidden to keep us all comfortable. Discipleship means we cannot sacrifice justice at the altar of niceness. We cannot avoid the tension that already lurks among us. Just yesterday, I learned that a leader of the so-called alt-right movement, which is a masked name for white nationalism, is setting up his headquarters in our city, on King Street. We cannot ignore and thereby normalize this hate in order to avoid tension. This tension is already among us. Because whenever we follow Jesus, the sin of the world, our sin is lifted up before us. And if we want to follow Jesus, we do not have the privilege to walk away from this tension. We have the responsibility to name it, to repent of it, and to make every attempt to bring about God's kingdom. Disciples cannot ignore the contrast between the God we choose to follow and the sin of the world in which we live. What time is it? It's a time to remember who we are and whose we are. We belong to God and we belong to each other. This God is a God of grace and a God of hope, and this hope is what will allow us to live with this tension. It is time to abide with Jesus. In service to that abiding and in 
in hopes that we have a place to begin, I have some homework for everyone. I like to send the kids home with homework a lot, but now it's, it's everyone's turn. On your way out, whether you stay for the congregational meeting or not, someone will be at the door with a folded note for you. In it is a scripture story. I pulled out 18 core stories from Jesus, uh, and all weekend I thought, oh, what about this one? I forgot this one. It's just a place to start. Each person will get one story. On the, on the out, outside of the folded notes is, uh, is a guide for working through these stories. An invitation to recognize that there is tension within Scripture. That Jesus, in his love, did not strive to be nice. He strived to be true and just and loving. I invite you to notice the tension within the text. To notice the tension between you and the text. To notice the tension between the text, the story, and the world. Many people will claim to follow Jesus. Many people will claim to know who Jesus is. We need to re-enter these stories so that we can check and make sure that we are well acquainted with the one who lived, suffered, died, and yes, was raised that our sin would be lifted up, and that we would be forgiven. Church, what time is it? It is time to follow the Lamb of God this day and every day. Amen.